Welcome to the Financial Planners South Africa podcast, a show dedicated to driving the positive evolution of financial advice, specifically in South Africa. To join a global community of financial advisors, sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion, people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. AssetMap is a proud sponsor of this podcast. Are you looking for the next big thing in advisor technology? AssetMap is used by thousands of financial advisors to help create more meaningful conversations with clients. See for yourself how AssetMap is leading the next phase of financial advice delivery. Learn more at asset-map.com forward slash Louis for special listeners discount. This episode is proudly brought to you by Alan Gray. They say it's important to live for today. Although that might be true, we can't forget to plan for tomorrow. There's a lot of it left, after all. Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. Visit www.alangray.co.za to learn how we build long-term wealth for clients. Welcome to another episode of Financial Planners South Africa. Today, I have Georgina Smith with me in the studio. Georgina, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Louis. Brilliant. We, we were just having a bit of a laugh trying to figure out what your official title is. But I guess the stab at it is kind of involvement in and around building out Innate as a platform within the Liberty Stable. And we'll keep that for a part of this episode. But I want to start the early part of your journey because you had a very fascinating path into financial services. Give us the background, you know, where Georgina came from because your uh, your accent gives it away a little bit. Oh, thanks, Louis. Um, I mean, it feels like years ago that you and I were having this conversation uh, when I joined financial services. I've actually been in the industry now for five years, which uh, which, you know, Makes me feel a little bit like more like an old timer, I suppose. But uh, so, so yeah, I had quite an interesting journey into financial services. Um, if I think back to my early 20s, just as I graduated, I became an accountant in an FMCG firm. In fact, it was Unilever. Great company, loved working there. But I don't think being an accountant was ever really my bag. And actually, I moved quite swiftly into training and development and really carved out a niche for myself in that finance for non-financial managers, really training people in how to read numbers, how to interpret them, and, and really make the most of them. And that's really what I, what I did for quite a long time. But meanwhile, and some, some of your listeners may know, but I, I used to uh, be a rugby referee, and I used to travel around the world. And in fact, I came to South Africa and, and refereed here. But on some of these travels, I met my husband because I sent him off. And um, it was it was probably one of only about four or five red cards I ever gave. Anyway, that's probably a story for another day. But but I met my husband and, and he's a dentist. And we decided that we would set up a dental practice together. And this was really where I started to really put my training and development, not just financial training into practice, but also the leadership training, the team building training from playing sport at a very high level to really kind of, you know, putting it into practice in a corporate world. 
And we just went from strength to strength. We built this practice and we bought another one and then another one. And, and it got just it just kind of grew. And, it, and it, they did really, really well. And in fact, one of those practices, when I put in place all the systematization that it needed, all the efficiencies that it needed, and really freed up the clinicians to do the things that they needed to do, um, that actually became one of the biggest independently owned private dental practices in the southeast of England. And really, um, you know, we, we, we were on this train, you know, my husband and I were on this train and, and, and you know, but but never quite really finding time to be with the family. It was, it was really a very busy time. And, and one day I said to him, I said, you know, there's, 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 a, there's a better way than being in this crappy weather in the UK, um, trying to, you know, sitting in traffic, uh, picking the children up. You know, we've got to find a better way. And, and he said, well, let's go and have an adventure. And I said, okay, let's, let's go and have an adventure. We, we sold up. And he said, where should we go? And I said, I've loved South Africa. I traveled there with rugby many times, loved it. Um, why don't we give it a go? He said, okay, let's go. And he'd never been. <laughs> and, uh, we turned up here six and a half years ago with the children and um, just loved it, made such a lovely life for ourselves here. And a year after I arrived, I met the guys at Innate, uh, in, uh, who, who at the time were part of Stanlib, I and mean, we're still part of Stanlib in the Liberty world. And they they were looking for a head of training, and um, they they uh, were very much looking for you know some energy and some um, you know to really kind of bring the whole thing to life. And I just got on really well with them straight away. I mean, the passion in the team. I mean, I think I was only number six through the door, and yeah, I mean, I had to learn a whole new industry, built all their training material, and and really just loved it. And from there. Um, uh, this opening opened up for for head of distribution. I thought, yeah, I, I know quite a lot about sales. I've done a lot of sales in my time. A long time ago, I started in telesales, and life's all about sales. I think I think I'd be quite good at that. I'm very good at building teams and that sort of stuff. And so, sure enough, I started to build this, you know, this this distribution team to sell the innate platform. And that's gone from strength to strength. Our, you know, when you look at our NMG feedback and and the, the, the way the market is receiving us is is, is just brilliant. Um, and then we decided uh, at Innate to bring the client services side, which is always, you know, buried at the back in operations. We said, they said, no, 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 let's bring it to the front. And so I look after the client servicing team as well now. So I look after the client servicing team and all the distribution team. And putting those two together means that we can give this really coherent experience for advisors as they come onto the platform. And I've learned so much um, in on this journey uh, from the bottom up, really. But I think what's really given me a really good grounding is just knowing how teams work, knowing how people tick, knowing what people want, and knowing how to make people feel special. And that, you know, that caring nature is actually what makes a platform work really really well for our advisors georgina can we pause a little bit there around the team component and so i think it's quite striking that you started with the technical side you built on you know more human skills around team coaching and and learning and development yet financial planners that tend to be successful at some point you know you find yourself building a business and you have don't necessarily have any training around building your teams 
where should you be starting if you're a financial planner with a small or medium-sized team? What are the things that you should be doing or what are the people that you should be hiring in those early days of building a startup financial planning business? Uh, Louis, I mean, it's such a great question. And I reflect, and, and again, it comes back to my dental practice days. Running a dental practice is incredibly similar to running a financial services practice. You see people in a highly anxious state. Um, you have to manage um, uh, support staff very closely. You have to manage the cash flow very closely. Uh, and there's a hell of a lot of compliance. You know, there, there, it doesn't get more similar than that, I think. So, so that experience, I think, is, is, is key. And when you think about building a team, you know, it's, it's all about communication, all about from the team level to the individual level. So what systems do you have in place to engage your team? How often do you connect as a team? And that runs from a daily stand up as, you know, and, and I think back to my dentistry days, you know, who's coming in today? And it's, it's very, um, very focused. Who's coming in today? Have we got all the materials we need? Is anyone coming in who's disabled? Uh, is there any anything special we need to be aware of as a team? Boom, boom, boom. That's 10 minutes. Done. First thing in the morning. And then there's a weekly meeting for everyone as well. Um, and, and that's got a different flavor, very different agenda. Uh, but it's very much a reflection on the week. How can we get better? What went well? What went wrong? Uh, what's What do we need to be aware of coming up? And then there's a monthly meeting, which is about your finances and where you are. And, and, and it's for everyone. You know, I used to include everyone in that. And then there's a quarterly meeting, which is about strategy. Where am I going? What are we trying to do? Are we close to our targets? So that's your skeleton, if you like, of, of how you engage everyone. And, and, and there's a discipline in this. You have to be very, very disciplined about how you engage with your team. And if you start falling away from that, then people start to feel unloved. They start to look elsewhere. And then there's that individual motivation. So I think it's... Um, now, if you look at most most uh, um, surveys and uh, research papers on what makes people tick, you know, when you look at your business and you put them against those four things, and these four things that make people tick are, the first one is, do I feel appreciated in this job? That's the first one. And the second one is, um, can I see a path, a progression path? So can I see a way in which I can improve? The third one is, am I remunerated properly? And the fourth one is, do I have fun? And they're in that order as well. So you work through that order. So with each of your team members, you can go through that tick list and go, am I appreciating them? Can I show them a path through to what they want? Which it, it might not be very much, but am I able to keep them interested? Am I remunerating them properly? And are they having fun? Now, nobody leaves a job because they're not being remunerated properly, but they will leave a job if they're not being remunerated properly. They can't see a path through. And, you know, that they, they aren't being appreciated. So it's usually a combination of those things as to why people leave. So if you get those four things right on an individual level, and then you put the structure in on a team level, you, you're on, you can't go wrong. <laughs> it's, it's that simple. That's so true, because as you put it so nicely, those four elements, I think the one part that stands out for me is that a lot of businesses are maybe not growing fast enough for their staff members to see a career path and to think about themselves still working there five or 10 years later. Where do you start tackling a business that's slowing down in terms of growth, yet still want to motivate and attract new people or retain their existing talent? 
Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a brilliant question again, Louis. That's, and that's a really tricky one. You know, how, how do I keep someone in, interested? And you've got to find the right fit of person. But what you can't do is sell them down the river. You can't try pretend you're being something that you're not. So you actually have to have quite an honest and open conversation with people to say, this, this is where I am in my life cycle. This is where I am in my business cycle. Are you happy to be on this journey? I will try and make it as fun as possible during, during our time as, as we're winding down. I'll remunerate you properly. I won't be able to show you a path of progression, but I'll definitely appreciate you. So there's, there's only one of the four that's missing. Now, if you get the other three right, it's probably enough, but you have to be transparent about it all throughout. You know, and, and that's a key thing, I think, for running a really successful team. Just be as transparent as you possibly can. I love that. I love that. And we should be having fun. You know, financial services has this image of uh, a very boring approach and, you know, like you're comparing it to dentistry. And how do we make it a little bit easier? You know, someone like Gary often talks about how asset map changes that experience for a client and he also compares it to dentistry and how people have this massive sense of anxiety. Are there practices that you see are including that fun element more so? And, you know, what are the rewards that they are picking? Yeah, and it's. I think there are some practices out there that do it really nicely. And you have to perhaps do a few different things for different groups of people. But it is really, I mean, it takes quite a lot of creativity to get everyone together doing something that everyone is going to enjoy. And that's what I would always strive for. So whether it's, you know, a trip to Kirsten Bosch Gardens and a picnic together and, and, and just, you know, chilling out together, or it's getting on scoot tours and going down the mountain, uh, or, or it's, you know, Acra Branch, whatever it is, I think it's so important to try to have some, have some fun as a team. And, and you can do that whether you're small, whether you're large, um, just getting out of the office, having lunch together once a week, you know, just Friday burger night or Tuesday burger night, you know, Try to make time to get to know your team and your staff on a personal level without having to talk about clients, things that you need to, you know, order, things that you need to put in the diary, you know, get away from those conversations and try to, it's a marriage, you know, being in a team, particularly if it's a smaller team, it's it's a marriage, you need to work at it. So it's really important to try and find that downtime and it's not wasted time. It's absolutely crucial time to spend with your team to make sure that everyone is on board. And that's that fourth element, having fun, and, and the first element, feeling appreciated. Yeah, your team members are probably your most important asset because in a service delivery business, they are on the front lines. Even though you might be seeing the clients, they're interacting with your clients, you know, and they can pick up on these small things. In our business, we like the term surprise and delight. And as you mentioned, you know, bring that creativity and try and find things where someone actually feels both surprised and delighted. Oh, you thought of that, even though it's a small, a small thing for them, it makes a massive difference. Louis, absolutely. And your team have the best ideas. They have much better ideas than, than, than the principal does, inevitably. I remember when I was in practice, um, we also had very similar mantras to you, surprise and delight. Um, and it was, it was all about, you know, how do we make someone feel special? That was very much our mantra, make someone feel special. And we were looking at ways and brainstorming ways um, about how to get referrals. And that's always a pretty difficult thing to get right. How do, how do I get referrals from the client base that I have already without sounding tacky? You know, can, can you please tell your friends that you like me and refer them on? You know, it's just a horrible, horrible thing. 
So one of my um, ladies in the practice said, well, I've got an idea. Why don't we have four or five really great gifts that we can send to someone when they refer someone? So, but we don't just send them the gift to their home address. We send it to their work address so that they have to open the gift in front of, of course, it's pre-COVID, in front of all their friends at work. And all their friends at work crowd around this brilliant gift, which is being opened. And it was it was anything from, you know, there were, there were four or five different ones. And it was uh, a box of capes. It was um, some lovely spa stuff and soap stuff and things like that. So, so it, you know, and all those friends at work would crowd around this person opening this gift. And in there would be a beautiful handwritten note that said, thank you so much for referring Mr. X to our practice. We've really enjoyed seeing him and we thank you very much for referring him. It was something, you know, something very personal like that. Now, from that one exercise, you've made someone feel amazingly special. You've also made everyone else in that office go, geez, my dentist doesn't do that. <laughs> and thought, well, I'll probably go there as well. And it was so incredibly simple but successful. And that idea came from one of my team members. And it was it was a brilliant, brilliant way of building a practice of patients that you really like treating because once you've got a book of patients you like, you want other patients like that to come into that practice. So that referral was just so important. It sounds like you approached that almost as an experiment to say, we don't know if this is going to work. Let's try it and see if it works. Am I right? Uh, absolutely. I'm the queen of the pilot. Um, and I, I, I do it at work as well. We, we tried a new servicing model um, uh, recently, uh, and we called it Yellowwood. Uh, and and it's um, and marketing's probably going to get upset that I've used that externally because I don't think it's supposed to be used externally. But, but our advisors know what we're talking about when we say Project Yellowwood. And this was where, um, when we launched Innate, we said to a select group of about 20 advisors, um, you're going into this pilot, we're calling it Yellowwood. Um, and it's, it was all about Yellowwoods being, uh, you know, the, the national treasure tree of South Africa. They've, you know, they've, they've been around for, for a long time. They're hopefully here to stay. You know, it's all about that kind of longevity. And they, and these 20 advisors, we lined up and we said, this is the experience we're going to give you. This is the piece of tech we're going to use to give it to you. We need to test it. Would you mind being part of this? Wow. It went so brilliantly. We were able to demonstrate to the business within eight weeks that it was, it was actually the right thing to do. And we've now rolled it out as part of our servicing, our servicing proposition to our advisors. And it's just gone from strength to strength. So the pilot is absolutely the key way in which you can prove that your ideas are going to work. How do you approach these pilot ideas if it doesn't work? You know, I think your team can get despondent if you're after iteration in iteration, you see things not working. So how do you approach that and how do you position it beforehand to make sure that even if the actual project might not come to fruition, people still feel excited to tackle the second pilot or the third pilot? Yeah, and it comes back to this, you know, fear of failure, doesn't it? I think we, we, we see this in growth mindset, you know, don't, and failure is, is only another way of getting to success and, and all of that. But it, you're right, it does feel a bit crap when something doesn't go as you wanted it to go. But the key, you actually touched on it there, Louis, is to, 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 to actually map out those criteria up front. 
you know, if we haven't nailed it within eight weeks, what are we going to do? Are we going to can it or are we, are we going to keep going? Are we going to, how often are we going to try and tweak it to, to reiterate it? Uh, what's the feedback going to be like? So, so you, as long as you don't, as long as it's not like a, you're not flogging a dead horse, you, you actually put those end milestones in and then you just chalk it up to experience and say to yourself, well, thank goodness I didn't go big bang on this. And we did only do a pilot because that's exactly what a pilot is there to do. It's there to prove it or disprove it. Um, and disproving is as valuable as proving it. Yeah, you're bringing in that fun element again, because you're not certain if you follow the process that, you know, everyone else is following and you're certain of the outcome, then you didn't push your team hard enough. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, it, 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 and, and you know what, even if it doesn't go well, the team then sees that, you know, everyone puts their hand up and go, well, that's why we do a pilot. And it, that's okay. Failure is fine. Um, as long as everyone knows that there's a chance it's going to happen. So, yeah, really important that, that everyone is on the same on the same page. And, and that also comes down to KPIs as well. How are you going to word and, and, and put those KPIs together for your team if, um, you know, if success of a certain pilot is part of your KPIs? That's going to feel a bit, a bit awful as well. You actually want to say completion of the pilot is your KPI. And whether it's successful or not is, is actually for the business then to determine what they're going to do with the outcome. It reminds me of those input versus output goals, saying if you focus on the things that are, you know, that are going in towards your goal, you know, if we talk about finance, your monthly contributions, and did you do the things that required, then the outcome is often not in your control. And it's a random outcome, right? But your process and your decision making was still sound and it still worked. So, so Louis, yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the point you make about inputs is so important. And I say to my sales team, of course, they have targets. Every sales team has targets. Who doesn't? Um, but but you, you can't concentrate on the target. You have to concentrate on the inputs, you, you, those behaviors you employ to, uh, to actually get to the target. So that is, is about how you make your advisor feel special, how you look after them, how often you engage with them, how quickly you engage with them, how you're able to resolve issues, how you're able to actually add value to their business, insightful value. So, so there's a whole range of inputs that we measure and then the outputs just come. They, they, they will follow later. If you're doing all the inputs right, the outputs will come. Georgina, can we talk about the role of the broker consultant? Um, specifically the relevant still today in businesses that are more and more digital, that are more and more streamlined. I can see within our practice, the engagement with broker consultants has reduced majorly over the last couple of years, just because systems have become more efficient. And I guess, you know, sometimes they even bypassed. So give me the, the thinking around how your team is set up and why that is the case and what kind of value can you still contribute as a broker consultant? Yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's again, it's a great question, Louis, because the, you're, you're right. With the digital world and particularly a platform like Innate, which is a digital platform, uh, as self-serve as we can possibly make it, uh, you know, to the point where it was born digital, you know, it was born after um, or, 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 you know, it, it didn't move from paper to digital signatures. There just aren't any signatures, you know. So, so uh, that, that point about self-serve is so important. And you're right, you know, there shouldn't be much need for an advisor to use a, a, a BC, a broker consultant, in the way they used to. You know, you think of those old-fashioned BCs who used to rock up every week 
collect a stack of app forms, say hi, bring some cakes and take them back to the office and, you know, the, the back office will process all those app forms. You know, that's that's not a value add in your world, that's for sure. Um, and it was just a necessary um, a necessary irritant in our world, if you like. So the way I want to see broker consultants engaging with advisors is very much around that value add. So, and it's not just a visit to the to to your practice. It's 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 hey, you know, these are the webinars we're running. There's some really interesting people that I think you get value from. Um, I've been looking at your data, Mister Advisor, and, and I can see that you know there's there's something happening over here. Um, can we have a chat about it? Maybe I can help you with it. Uh, not only that, to understand your world in such a way of the sort of clients you're trying to to, to attain and, and keep, and then what what you need to do that. So, for instance, in the offshore world, what do you need, you know, to, to help penetrate those high net worth clients? You know, what 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 help, what support do you need? Can we give you that? Can we help help you with that? Also, you know, to the point of we've got lots of experts in the business, tax experts, um, you know, uh, propositional experts, product experts. You know, how can we help you with that as well? So, yeah, I mean, not that long ago, I was in a in a practice and we were talking in very deep terms about the RDR review and where that was going and the, perhaps the potential changes to the CAT2 license. And this um, advisor was thinking about how to structure his business legally, uh, but also um, operationally to make sure he was well set up for those RDR changes around the CAT2 license. So it's all of that value add that actually we should be bringing to you. And it's not that traditional BC turning up on your doorstep once a week to collect a stack of app forms. I don't think that does either of us any any good. So this sounds much more like a mentorship role and being able to connect people with the right resources. But at the same time, how do you make inroads into that practice? Because you need to be able to identify those problems for you to be able to solve it. So how are you managing to do that? Yeah. And, and um, again, it comes back to that referral, actually, because you guys are a close network. Um, you talk to each other. Um, and what we find is we have a cohort of like-minded advisors who talk with each other and they say, hey, I tried that that new innate platform. It was actually really good and I had a great experience. Someone else tries it, someone else tries it. You've got that referral thing going on. Now, once you, you know, go back to my dentistry days, we always used to find that if someone was referred to us, a client was referred, a patient was referred to us, they were three times more likely to stay with us than someone who just came in from advertising off the street or, you know, any other way. So that referral is so important, and that's when we come back to our tribe. So, so what are we doing with the, with that tribe? How are we how are we actually forming a tribe of advisors who get together, and and that can be through one of our dinners, through one of our events, and they chat and they network and they they get on, they exchange stories, and before you know it, you've got again this reinforcing behavior of yes, I I had a good experience, and I'd recommend it to another friend and. We very rarely, I can't even think of the last time I had my team cold calling advisors. You know, that doesn't necessarily happen anymore. It's very much about referral. You opened up the door to data analytics and talking about, Mr. Advisor, this is what we're seeing. And even it sounds like in your previous role, you use data to inform your decisions. Yet advisors receive very little data from 
their client behavior, I'm thinking things like how often someone logs in, when they tend to go to the website, what it is that they do. Is there any interesting data points that you can share with us that surprised you over the last couple of years from maybe an advisor or a client activity point of view? Well, one thing I can say is clients log on a lot less regularly than perhaps we think they will. (laughs) I think uh, when I look at the client log on data, um, the average client logs on less than once a month to look at their um, look at their portfolio. So, so that's I think that's that's interesting. That's in something worth celebrating in itself. Which which means you know they must be having a um, they, they must be not anxious. I mean, it tends to be those who are anxious who tend to log on a, a lot more, and that's credit to the advisors who are managing them and managing that behaviour uh, around perhaps market movements or, or whatever's going on. So yeah, I mean that's one data point, and then and, and then really this is this is the stuff that's in development, you know. So 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 that that overall view of your practice, what are the things we're looking at, and there's all sorts of ideas we've got around that, and there's some great stuff from overseas as well. I think advisors love to know where they are within a cohort of other advisors. You know, am I putting through the same amount of apps as everyone else? Um, I shouldn't recall really the apps, but. Uh, pieces of new business as everyone else is my average case size the same as other advisors you know being able to share if you like a league table of of uh, of actually information without digre- without divulging any sort of you know um individual stats you know without breaching copy or anything like that but just show where people are in terms of what the what the overall view is of our platform i think would be very very useful so, so it's those sort of ideas we're throwing around at the moment. Um, and in fact, Transact a platform in the UK do this very successfully. Um, and it, it is, you know, they, they pull out their top 100 advisors and they say, Hey, these, these is, this is what these guys are doing. And, uh, I think that's, that's quite interesting. Yeah. There's so much that you can do with the data. I'm even thinking kind of prompting the advisor when a client logs in too frequently so that you can start reaching out and, mm. We hear so much around investor behavior, yet I feel like a lot of the software and the providers aren't really giving us the tools to be engaging better with clients. I'm assuming that you're spending a lot of time thinking and listening also around the behavioral side. Do you see that being implemented well in practices? Oh, the behavioral side of um, of clients I mean, there's a, there's a huge variation, isn't there, in terms of the style of financial planning that people, people give anything from, and I, but I do see a move, a very definite trend away from products, away from all of that towards behavioral coaching, financial coaching. And in fact, in the UK, it's almost a sin to call someone an advisor. You're a financial planner and that's a much more holistic title. So there's definitely a move from advisors to try to move towards that behavioral coaching, which of course frees up means they have to, to do that. They need to free up more time. So you see other uh, time hijackers, if you like, being, being offloaded to other people. So your fund picking, you know, you're seeing a much higher adoption of, of your uh, DFMs um, and, and going further down the chain as well. You know, I think it, there's a real opportunity to, to, for DFMs who can scale to move into the, the, what I call the GP market, the general practitioner market, and actually access that that end of the market and, and take some of that burden off those advisors who want to move a lot more into that financial uh, planning uh, mold. Then, then, of course, you've got the compliance. So, so how is compliance 
um, being being done in a practice and, and how much time is that sucking up? And when you think of all these different things that, that advisors are having to manage and keeps them up at night and where are my new clients coming from and what about RDR and am I going to be uh, okay? You are seeing this big migration of advisors, particularly the sort of one-man bands, into those networks where you've got a lot more security, you've got a lot more um, a, a lot more support and, and succession planning as well. People who want to extract value from their business, you're seeing we're seeing really quite a migration of those guys into those networks. So, so I think there's there's all sorts of trends which I think are incredibly interesting and exciting in our industry. And it's, it's, it's actually very similar to what's happened in the UK, but just a few years behind them. Yeah, I think we're fortunate to be in South Africa because you can almost look at the US, the UK and Australia and make an educated guess of how things are going to play out from a compliance perspective, but also from a business succession point of view. You mentioned now you know, these businesses buying up smaller size practices. Yet, if you look at the US data, it seems like it's the medium-sized practices that are struggling. The one-man shows, one-man bands, and the larger businesses tend to be quite profitable, yet it's these guys in the middle. In terms of advisors aging and getting to retirement, do you see that as a threat for the platform that you're building? No, so so isn't it funny? I don't know how you feel about this, Louis. I mean, you're clearly a lot, a very young and successful financial planner. Um, but it feels like, and I, I have to, I have to defer to people who've told me this because I've not been in the industry long enough to experience this myself. But it feels like this industry has always had an echelon of wealth managers who are in their late forties to late fifties. You know, that doesn't seem to change. They, you know, and, and it seems to be a pretty consistent number. So what I think is probably happening is, is you've got those younger guys learning their trade in, in the risk space, in the tide space, in the, the one man band space. They move into, um, in uh, either into a, uh, a network or into a, an investment specialist or into a, even into a holistic advice practice. And then they, by the time they've done that, they've, they're in their mid to late forties. And so you just see this constant feed of, of, of advisors coming through, um, who are wealth managers, but they're just at that time in their career. So I, I, I don't see it as too much of a risk. I, I think, I think there's, there's others, other risks perhaps that, uh, that I should worry about more. <laughs> Yeah, that average age tend to stay there in the kind of early 60s. And I guess it makes sense as younger people come in and older people retire. You mentioned there's other risks. Are there any any ones that come to mind that you want to unpack? Well, I think I think there are. I mean, there's, there's, it depends where you look in the industry. There's always risks around the industry. I do think there's, we're in for an interesting few years as we see platforms re-platform. So let me just stop there and um, and explain what that is. So so we, we had the Stanley platform. We decided to build a brand new platform, which was which is the innate platform. We brought, we, we brought this brand new technology via a supplier who is a global supplier and has, has delivered this, uh, this sort of technology in Australia and the UK all, all over. So when I think about risks in the industry, I think there's there's several really. Uh, there's certainly some interesting movement in the platform space, and it's not necessarily a risk; it's just an interesting development. 
And that's in, in what I'd call the re-platforming space. So we have, we've got the standard Lisp and we've taken, uh, the Bravura technology and built innate on this Bravura technology, which has been proven in other markets around the world. And it's been South Africanized and regionalized for us here. And, and now we've, we've, we've come out the other side of that and it's taken a while. You know, it's taken four to five years. And during that time, there was no investment in the standard Lisp. It wasn't a happy journey. You know, it's not easy. It's never get, there is no platform in the world that has done this smoothly. But in actual fact, we did it relatively quickly, um, compared with other platforms around the world. But what you're seeing actually is what advisors need, the technology that they need means that these old legacy systems, which inherently are butchered life systems, butchered bank systems, which have been cobbled together to be something that an advisor might like, they're reaching the end of the life, end of their life, which is what standard was. And then what you do is you build something which is absolutely purpose built and advisor inspired, which is, is what the innate one is. Now, what we're seeing is Momentum have come out and partnered with FNZ and they've announced the, they're re-platforming their platform. And that's going to be an interesting, uh, an interesting journey. Having been through it myself from the, from, from the innate perspective, it's, it's not easy. You're also seeing, um, the acquisition. We've also seen the acquisition of Silica, uh, by FNZ as well. So those guys that, that operate on Silica may well be um, looking to uh, adopt the FNZ technology. And then, of course, you've seen, you know, it's still going through the approval uh, with the Competitions Commission, but you've seen the acquisition of AIMS by Sandland Glacier. Now, that's also uh, uh, going to be a consolidation exercise. Um, so, so there's a hell of a lot of stuff going on in the platform industry, which I think could make for quite a bumpy ride on the old legacy systems. So, so that's, that's one area which I think is watch this space, see how that all plays out. Um, and then, then you could look in the advisor's space. So, so what's going on there and, and what's, what do we need to look at there? I mean, perhaps Louis, what, what would you say is one of your biggest risks in, in the advisor space? What are you worried about? That's an interesting one because I often think that I have the luxury of thinking a little bit further ahead. You can think 30 years in terms of you know, how will our industry still make an impact? How will it be monetized? You know, obviously the kind of shift away from products, becoming someone's decision maker or assistant in making better quality decisions, not only about their finances, maybe predominantly about their finances, but in their lives and the impact that you can make through that. And then thinking, okay, how do you, how do you monetize that? And how do you create a sustainable business because as you rightly said, your business in dentistry or your business in any other service industry, it's still the same business structure. We just happen to deliver advice and there's a clear method of getting paid. And so the biggest concern probably is that race to the bottom, you know, that squeezing of income to a fee that is reasonable for the service that you deliver. And I'd love to pitch that back to you to say, you know, do we have a decouplement of the fees that are being charged and the value of the advice that's being delivered. Is that still reasonable to be charging, um, you know, let's call it 100 basis points on a large investment for the impact that you are making in someone's life or the quality of their decisions? So, Louis, I think what you mentioned there about value of advice and then how you charge it, charge for it is a really interesting and quite a philosophical conversation. 
intrinsically, clients want to know that the more they earn, the more you earn, and that those two things are really closely linked. So, so actually, I think that model has got quite a lot of legs, you know, charging a certain bit rate on a person's personal AUM, if you like. But then you've got a group of people who, or and certain different groups of people, but one group of people in particular who I think we've got to see some more innovation in pricing around. And if I think of that group who are, who we call the Henrys, you know, the high earners but not rich yet group, you know, what, how, how do you how do you put together a model for that and, and making sure that you as an advisor are paid, paid appropriately? knowing that actually they're not going to be rich or accumulate assets for quite some time. And then there's that, how do I quantify the value that I'm giving to clients? So, and you're so right. You, you said that, um, you know, it's getting much broader. It's not just about products. It's not even about risk and investments anymore. You're seeing people having to give advice on, you know, clients going and saying, I've got these old MTN shares and I don't know what to do with them. What should I do with them? Um, I've got all these reward cards for all these store shops and I've got, I've got this, you know, my, my bank reward card is sitting at 200,000 rand. What should I do with it? Um, my health, uh, vitality points. How, how do, how do I navigate that properly? There's a whole load of financial advice actually that, that is needs to be given, but it's not necessarily in the traditional remit of what a financial advisor or planner is used to giving advice on. And so how do you monetize that and how do you charge appropriately for it? And I think we're going to see quite a lot of innovation around that sort of area. Yeah, to me, that still feels that it's productized almost saying, okay, Mm -hmm. you know, you need to make a decision around these things. I think the shift that I'm seeing is more in terms of these major decisions, kind of even something like what does end of life stage look like if you have been suffering with cancer for a really long time? How do you engage with your family? And those type of decisions, money is a big part of that. But this kind of think about the life transitions that people go through. And we've had quite a few guests talk through the financial transitionist models and, you know, registered life planning and how that's playing out. So, if you want to, uh, you can always listen to one of those episodes. Um, but it is a journey. I think what you are highlighting for us today is that you need to be investing in yourself. You need to be investing in your team. And you need to be investing in your clients to remain uh, the top of that kind of service that you want to offer so that the monetization is less of an issue 10, 20, or 30 years from now. Yes, I, I, I agree. And, and it's also about understanding your client really, really well. Um, and we're seeing a lot of um, innovation around that sort of that, that really kind of uh, environmental impact side as well. So I'm certainly seeing a lot of trends around that. I was, I was lucky and fortunate enough to host a webinar with Rian Singh from PwC. He's, a, he's written a super, super paper. And, and what you're seeing is is innovation around financial products, which are aligned very much to to the to the client's goals, the client's own goals. So, for example, you can have a credit card now, which um, which is available in Scandinavia, which analyzes the carbon footprint of those uh, of those companies you're spending money with, and as soon as you reach the limit that you've set yourself for your carbon footprint then you know it cuts you off it cuts off your spending so i think there's really interesting innovation which which will allow you in lots of different ways to get closer to your client and then it's going to be about how do you scale that you know how do you 
how do you give this bespoke and um, make f- people feel special, surprise and delight? How do you make them? How do you how do you scale that? Um, that's that's really interesting um, because the two are in, intuitively uh, uh, juxtaposed. Georgina, where do you see cryptocurrencies and NFTs fit into the platform? of the future. You know, is it worth spending time exploring that? We recently had Steve Sandusky on, um, who's a thought leader in terms of how advisors should be embracing this new wave of digital assets. And it seems like there's a lot of traction in the US market, yet in South Africa, there's lit- very little conversation around this. So I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah. Uh, so, so, look, I'm not qualified to give any kind of insight into cryptocurrencies or, or anything uh, or, or NFTs, you know, that side of things. But what I what I am really excited about is the technology that sits on the blockchain technology. And I think that is the place where platforms are really going to start um, making some real inroads. And that technology, actually, there's a focus group and a, a pilot group, my, my favorite word, a pilot group in Standard Bank. Um, who are exploring how to really extract value from blockchain and how that could work in, in, in platforms and financial advisor world. So we're taking it really seriously. But for me, that's the obvious place where I think, uh, I think we're going to see, uh, traction reasonably quickly in, in how we do business. Yeah, as the volatility in these assets continue to <laughs> throw curveballs to clients, I think it's a valuable piece to be able to talk to clients about and give them a framework to see where it fits in in terms of building their wealth and looking after their wealth. It is a tricky space because it's not well regulated in South Africa. So I think we'll continue probably to see the same the same structure and hopefully it's included in some of the platforms, at least from a reporting perspective. Future. Yeah, I, th- I think it really is a very much a watch this space. Uh, but once you, uh, what I can say is, I think once you see, uh, once you see it starting to come, it's going to come very quickly. You know, I think you know everyone's going to jump on, and and they'll and you'll see development in this area very very quickly. I know you spend a lot of time kind of working on working on your your fitness journey, and you spend a lot of time in the water. Share with us a little bit how that keeps you motivated to to function in your role. Oh yes, um, yeah, so yes, you're not wrong there. So, so having swimming is an interesting thing, isn't it? So, I, I was never a, a, um, a swimmer at school. I never really, I, I never really was that kid who loved getting in the pool. Swimming was a, a you know, you had to go in the UK. You go to a Veruca-infested indoor indoor pool. You have to get in your pajamas, collect a rubber brick from the bottom, and that's the end of your PE lesson. And that's kind of, that were my memories of swimming. Um, And then I arrived in South Africa and I thought, gosh, how am I going to make friends? You know, what what, what should I do? And I joined a local swim swim club. And um, my friend Craig, who I met there, he said, you know, you really should try some open water swimming. You know, the swimming up and down the pool, it's all very well, but it's a bit boring. And so off we went to Fishhook where I was, I thought there were, you know, there was a shark around every rock. I was convinced there were millions of them and I, I hovered a long way from the shark net on the inside of it and, and was petrified about all the holes in it. In fact, kelp scared me to death. Um, and then, you know, the, the group grew, the, the open water group grew. And before I knew it, I was actually doing pretty well at this thing. And then we went into lockdown and we were in that awful period. Remember that awful period where we couldn't swim at all? And I 
I came out of lockdown, we couldn't exercise or anything. I came out of lockdown and I was so frustrated. My friend said to me, you know, there's an opening to swim around Cape Point. Uh, why don't you give it a go? I said, oh, no, I don't, I don't think I could do that. And she said, well, what's the worst that can happen? You, you get in the boat. You know, that's the worst that happen that can happen. And, you know, there's only this window of, of weather comes once every year, maybe 18 months. So this is it. Go for it. Why not just give it a go? And so I did. And before I knew it, I had swum the eight and a half kilometers around Cape Point. And by that time, I was hooked. And I, I thought, wow, I can't believe I did that. So uh, then I went on and did a couple of Robin Island swims and various other stuff. And it's just grown from strength to strength. And I'm now busy training for a crossing across False Bay. So I've already crossed False Bay from Miller's Point to Royale's. I did that in a team of four last year. But now this year, uh, in the first week in March, I'm doing it as a team of two. So we will be the first ever female relay, two-man relay team. And we do it in, I never swim with a wetsuit. It's always just in a costume and a hat and goggles. And yes, it's 35 kilometers, so 17 or so kilometers each um, with some, some tricky marine life to negotiate. Uh, and making sure that uh, we stay alive and make it to the other side. And I'm doing it for a charity called Swim for Rivers. And um, they're a wonderful charity. Craig, who I mentioned earlier, he's he's a big part in that charity. And it's all about getting water to those rural um, and often neglected uh, communities in the Eastern Cape. So so that's, that's, what, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to raise enough money to get a borehole for them. So, so that's what it's all about. So that's what's happening in that first week in March. And and that hasn't really answered your question about how it keeps me motivated for my job. But there is something about exercise, which is just a reset for me. It's, it's, it gives me thinking time. It makes me feel good. It's a discipline, just as life is a discipline. Uh, if you're going to be successful, it is all about discipline, discipline, discipline. Of course, have fun, but you must get those habits in place. Otherwise, you will not be as successful as you possibly could could be. So, so reaching your full potential is all about just embedding those habits. And for me, exercise and achieving those kind of goals that that I've set myself here is all about you know just being the best I can possibly be. That is remarkable, Georgina. And for anyone that can see how your face is lighting up, the passion that you have for this is really shining through, and the passion that you have for building strong teams and moving this financial services industry forward. I really enjoyed our chat today. And if someone wants to reach out to you, what's the best place to get hold of you? Always, uh, I think LinkedIn is uh, the best place to, to find me. I'm, I'm often on there, often commenting. Um, so please message me on LinkedIn and I'd be delighted to respond. Thank you so much. And all the best for that challenge on the 1st of March. I'll be rooting for you. Oh, thanks so much, Louise. Great to chat. <laughs>